So open your Bibles if you would. St. Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2. Um, we're continuing, as we did last week, to talk about the Apostles' Creed. Um, we're going to talk about it next week, too. Uh, we're doing this because... It is the doctrinal statement of our fellowship. It's what's in our Constitution and bylaws. It's in the handout that we present to the community so that we are accountable. Should somebody ask you or ask us, what does Gateway Christian Fellowship believe? Uh, we can say, this is what we believe. And it's important to understand what we believe and know why. You know, many people have suggested that 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which says, Sanctify Christ as Lord is your heart, always being ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. The, the great apologetic verse, to be able to explain rationally why you believe what you believe. That's, again, been called by a lot of people as the verse of our generation because we have a culture that's asking that question of us. We live in a, in a society that's asking that question. Why do you believe? Why should I believe that? Why do you think it's true? And I think that's a lot of, a lot of truth to it. We need to be able to explain to the culture in which we live why we believe what we believe. But you can only do that if you know what you believe. It's kind of hard to believe why you believe, but if you don't know what you believe. And so it's important that we get these foundational truths well established in our minds. And that's what we do through the Apostles' Tool. It's a, either the Apostles' Creed, it's a good tool for explaining exactly what it is we believe. And we're going to be looking at the, a portion of it this morning, and we're going to be doing it through the lens of a, of a particular passage of Scripture, not going to be exegeting the passage, but simply using it as, a, I think, a starting point. It's a good way to put that. Uh, Paul writing to Titus, and Titus was someone that we know from Titus chapter 1. Paul had left on the island of Crete. And if you know anything about Paul's epistle to Titus, or if you know anything about the island of Crete, it wasn't an easy place to minister. It was a very challenging place. I don't know that any ethnic group got slammed as hard in the New Testament as the Cretans did. Um, they're just like Greeks, but more so, right? But the beaches are fabulous, and the food is wonderful. If you ever have a chance, put Crete on your bucket list. So Paul's writing to Titus in a difficult situation. Paul's instructions to Titus in chapter 1 have been very clear. Put that place in order. Establish some order there in those Cretan churches. And in the process of doing that, as Paul is giving all this instruction in the letter, what Titus needs to do, he says this in the first verse of the second chapter. He says, but as for you, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and ask, Lord, that as we look to it, um, we would have the instruction, Father, for the practical tools that we need as we are challenged, as we should expect to be, Lord, in, in the day and age in which we live, to explain what we believe and why we believe it, we would be able to articulate clearly exactly what it is that we believe, exactly what it is we have based our lives upon, what we based eternity on, Father. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the church has always had a significant need to be able to explain exactly what we believe. You know, I... I You'll hear people say sometimes, you hear a lot more than we used to, but it's still said that, oh, I just wish we could get back to the early church. 
I just wish, wish that we could be like the first century church. And I always want to ask, exactly what part of the first century church are you talking about? The part where they rolled you in animal skins and threw you in the arena for dogs to eat? Or is it the part where you really weren't sure what to believe because you didn't have this? I mean, all they had were the oral resuscitations of people that had heard what Jesus had said and repeated it. That must have been murder, trying to navigate faith without Scripture, without the Gospels or the Epistles, without a really clear understanding of what any of that meant. We are incredibly blessed to live in the day and age in which we live. Not to mention, not for the most part, being wrapped in animal skins and fed to dogs. That couldn't have been pleasant. No, we're blessed. We're incredibly blessed, and we would be wise to um, take advantage of it. Because, of course, we're also accountable for that with which we're blessed. So, we had that same need today. We still need to be able to articulate what we believe um, but we have so many tools that we can use, and the Apostles' Creed is one of it. And so what I'd like to do this morning is um, first just speak again briefly to that importance of knowing exactly what we believe and why we believe it, why a creed or a doctrine is helpful, but then look to the creed itself, and we'll spend the majority of our time uh, picking up where we left off in our study of the creed. Now, before I get to that, though, just a couple of quick comments about the feedback that I got last week. It was great. I love it. I love it when people come up and say, you know, you said but, or you said, and I'm not sure. I love it. And, and that carried over into our Wednesday evening life group. You said that? I can't believe you said that. Um, and all the things we talked about, all the questions were about one thing that I said, right? That's always a you know, good sign. Um, I said that even though God is our father, that doesn't make him male, Right? And that was like, whoa, what's going on there, right? And, and I want to just take a moment to explain that. See, the problem with saying that God is male is, is, to, is, a, is a couple different elements to that. First off, um, Genesis has something to say about that. In Genesis chapter 1, where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. So that means if God is male, he's also female. That's problematic, right? I'm going to have a really hard time working with that one, right? Um, and if he's not female, then he's not male, right? So it, that, that doesn't work. Uh, and then there's the, that whole issue in, in, in the New Testament where Jesus said God is spirit, right? You see, when we, we can say that God is father because that means that the things we see in a man who is being a good father, the love, the care, the provision, the pro anything that you put into that definition of what a good father is, that's a, in that person, flawed though they may be, limited as they may be, when you see the attributes of a good father in a man, that's a demonstration of the character of God. Because he is all those things in perfection. He is all those things in perfection. That we can say. But when you say God is male, you attribute physicality to him. Because that's what distinguishes male from female is our physical being, right? And attributing physicality to God is extremely problematic. 
It creates, it creates all kinds of issues, if nothing else, that Jesus told us that he is not a spirit, but he is spirit. His essence is spirit, not physical. And especially if you confine God to a male physical body, what does that say about the relationship of the whole female half of the human race to God? What is their source? How does, how does that make it possible for someone that's not male to relate to the God who created them in his image? It creates a whole lot of confusion. So we attribute fatherhood to God, but we do not attribute gender to God. Now, that's all we're going to say on that. If that's not good enough, that's the best I can do. So moving on, moving on this morning to the rest, which I said last week was going to get easier. That was wrong. It's not going to get any easier because we're talking about the nature of God, right? So the, the, our text this morning, or our portion of the doctrine this morning, and um, again, it's a lot of people have, have a problem with it. They have a problem with anything that's, that's doctrinal because I think for some people it's like, I, don't, I can't comprehend it. I can't wrap my head around it. Join the club. None of us really can, right? Or whenever we talk about it, we just argue and fight. Um, nothing new about that. That's why Paul left Titus in Crete, right? That's one thing the church has been good about. But I did see something this week which really helped me, because that's kind of my perspective. I have never been one who liked to get into you know, doctrinal discussions because they tend to degenerate into arguments and fights and disagreements over the, you know, the head of a pin, the whole thing, you know. But I, I discovered something in Scripture that really helped me. I was looking through Scripture, looking at the word doctrine, or teaching, same word, and I was looking at the word that connected to it. Because you can often tell a lot about what's being discussed you know, on a word by looking at the word that's connected to it. And what I found is the phrase right doctrine isn't there. There is one reference to good doctrine, right? And that can mean many things. But what is most commonly said about doctrine is sound doctrine. There are multiple references, primarily in Titus and Timothy, to sound doctrine. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I looked at that in a little more depth. And the word that is translated sound there is the word yihia. Yihia, which you may or may not recognize, but it comes directly into English as hygiene. Now, that is not to suggest that we should have hygienic doctrine. That creates all kinds of possibilities. Though the word, the word if, if you trace its, its history, it's got a fascinating history. It's a very old word. It goes way, way back to the earliest Greek. Um, it, mean, it meant healthy. Healthy. And initially, in its first use, it, um, it meant healthy in body. That Hippocrates guy, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, he was really big on this word. Yeah, it meant healthy or whole in, in physical body. If you're a person that's uncomfortable with the idea of holistic Things, I got bad news for you. We're all about a holistic doctrine here, right? So just get used to it, okay? Then it went from the idea of physical wholeness, physical wellness, to emotional wellness, to be emotionally whole. Then it went to the idea of being intellectually whole, meaning your thought processes, your actual reasoning processes, that which is sound in terms of reasoning. Then it went to the idea itself, that the idea that someone offered what they said would be whole. And, and, and that whole development, it even included moral wholeness or moral wellness. There was, it was a two-pronged thought. 
anything, whether our physical bodies, our moral state, our, our mental state, our morale, anything must both emanate from a place of wholeness and produce a condition of wholeness. Well, when you translate that idea and attach it to doctrine, that changes it drastically from this question of, well, is it exactly right, or can I find a flaw in what you say and like, or I can tear it, you know. No, to the idea is, do, does what we believe emanate from a whole, complete understanding of God through his word, and does it produce wholeness in us? And I think we can affirm that it does. I think that we can affirm that knowing who God is and following according to the teachings of his scripture and knowing what we believe, as we do in a, a statement like this, it does emanate from a whole perspective, and it will produce in us wholeness in our bodies, wholeness in our minds, wholeness in our emotions, and wholeness in our lives. And here's the best part. Although we're not guaranteed, we are not guaranteed that it will produce you know, physical wholeness. We can have our faith in perfect order and still get sick. We can be assured that whatever we experience in that time of illness or weakness or emotional trauma or whatever we're experiencing that would not reflect wholeness, we will handle it in a much better way than if we weren't rooted and grounded in the things of Scripture. And conversely, even if we got everything else in order, if we're not rooted in Scripture... And if we don't know the person and character of God, no matter how well everything else is going, we are not whole people. Wholeness is found first and foremost only in a relationship to God through his son. So that's what we're really all about when we talk about doctrine. It's a whole lot more than we maybe initially thought. So turning again in doctrine to this whole issue of the creed. Last week we looked at the first two lines which talked about the Father. Already addressed that, right? Well, this week we're going to look at lines 3 to 12 which talk about Jesus. And so it reads this way, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Amen. Now, if you know the Corinthian letters, you know that all, just about everything in this portion is taken right out of 1 Corinthians 15, which Paul begins by saying, these are the matters of first importance. So what, what the writers of the creed did was they took the essence of our faith, as Paul identified it in that marvelous passage in 1 Corinthians, and turned it into this affirmation that I believe. Something, too, I, I could add, even applied to last week. When we make that statement, I believe, that's not a static statement. It's not like here's this body of belief or this doctrinal statement and I'm in it. It literally means I am progressively stepping into it and further into it. I am moving into what I affirm I believe. And there's great freedom in that because it tells me I don't have to have it all down at once. I can have a lot of questions about some of these things. I can be processing them and not, and not even be sure about them, but I can know that as long as I am moving into them, I am increasing the faith and the trust. I invest in them. I'm moving in the right direction. Okay? The first lines speak about Jesus' identity, affirming the person of Christ. The next few lines speak about Jesus' ministry. And the third line, or the final line, speak about his return. So let's talk about his identity first. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born 
of the Virgin Mary. As I said, this was the biggest question of the early church. Exactly who is Jesus? Remember, the vast majority of early believers are coming from this very strongly Old Testament perspective, which the New Testament affirms completely, right? The one true God. What did every Jew believe above and beyond everything else? The Lord thy God is one. That's the foundation of everything, right? God was seen primarily as transcendent above all. The rabbis referred to him as the holy transcendent one. He was above and beyond. Time and time again, the Old Testament said, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Listen carefully to Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham in Genesis 14, 19. Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Who's involved in that blessing? Melchizedek, Avram, and God. And Melchizedek says, blessed be Avram by God. Okay? The well-known blessing of numbers. Magnificent, magnificent blessing. And I think most of us know it well and cherish it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. What a marvelous blessing and benediction. But again, listen to the blessing carefully and try to get the visual on the spatial relation of the characters involved. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You have the person pronouncing the blessing, the person being blessed, and God. That's the spatial relationship with space in between all three. That's what we mean by the transcendence of God. Loving, caring, and yet transcendent above and separate. Yes, visiting his people blessing his people, caring for his people, but not eminently among them. Holy other, separate, transcendent. Then we come to the New Testament. And Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And his first two words blew their mind. He said, pray this way, our Father. Look for that pronoun in the Old Testament. You won't find it. Our Father? No. Much too close. Much too personal. How did the Jews react when Jesus called God his Father? They crucified him. Do not be mistaken. The Jews did not crucify Jesus because they misunderstood him. They crucified him because they understood him perfectly. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was equating himself with God. They grew angry at him, one text says, because he called God his father, making himself equal with God. The Old Testament perspective, which was the only perspective the early church had, was of God who was wholly separate, wholly above, transcendent. And then there's Jesus walking around in bodily form. 
my God, God has a birthday. Unthinkable. God is in human flesh. God eats and, and drinks with his friends. Doesn't work. That was lie, right? Jesus declares himself to be equal with God. I am the Father of I am the Father of one. Before Abraham was, I am. And that's why his message was rejected. So the, the early church is reasonably consumed with this question: who is Jesus? And they came to the place where they could assert, yes, he is God. It was not an easy place to come to. But through literally centuries of debate and discussion and prayer and contemplation, they came to the place they could assert that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. By the way, Christ is not his last name. Christ is the title, the anointed one. It identified him as Messiah, and what that meant is that everything the Old Testament said about the one to come, the Messiah, the anointed one, all of that was complete and perfectly found in the person of Jesus. He fulfilled everything the Old Testament called for, even the stuff they didn't see was there until after he came. The only son. Jesus' unique and complete connection with his Father was the very source of the problem the Jews had, and yet it was absolutely affirmed. He alone, of those who have walked this earth, shares the Father's initial, or rather essential, being. Now, I don't know much of anything about DNA, but I would be willing to bet if a sample of Jesus' DNA could be found and could be examined, they would see something they had never seen before. Because there would be something in that DNA that could be traced to the Father, which has never been true of anybody else. There would be something traced to Mary, born of the Virgin Mary, yes. But there would also be something in that DNA traceable to the Father, and no other person can claim that. God's only Son. Our Lord, Supreme Master, and that's a challenge for us in our Western American mindset. We don't do well with lords and masters. That's our challenge to get over because it's true. That's who he is. Again, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That not only means conceived by the Spirit of God, that also means not conceived by a man. No man had anything to do with it. No human father. His connection to humanity was through his mother. A completely miraculous birth in its conception, a completely miraculous birth in its conception. And it's at that point, the miraculous part kind of stops. And it's human from then on out. Everything about Jesus' development within the womb, everything about Jesus' delivery was no different than any other human baby. And I don't know about you, but that's as hard for me to get my brain wrapped around it as his, as his conception. Yeah, fully God, fully human. Divine conception, human birth. Complete and total paradox. But we can't talk about Jesus without talking about paradox. Thus, Jesus is the one who is fully divine, but fully human, affirmed in the creed and never explained. Affirmed but never explained, it's for us to accept by faith, right? That's who Jesus is. 
That's his identity. Now let's talk about his ministry. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. The suffering part I can, I can grasp. The under part I, I struggle with. God placing himself at the disposal of a man. God subjecting himself to the will and the whim of men. That's hard. But it's an expression of his willing condescension to be that which he needed to be and to suffer that which he needed to suffer. And it is a tremendous model for us in our lives to be prepared to do what we need to do, to be what we need to be to accomplish the purposes of his kingdom in our lives. Easy? No. Necessary? Absolutely. He was crucified, died, and was buried. A complete and total death experience. I'm still working on this one in a big way. I'll, I'll admit that. The fact that Jesus' experience of death was not in the least bit cut short. Now, we know the timing of it was unusually short for a crucifixion, but nothing about his experience of death was any different, any less, we should say. Crucified, died, and utterly dead. He descended to the dead, which is to say he followed the normative path of the dead. Now, I don't know what you think about your you know, vision of Hades and the afterlife, but it's certainly affirmed that a downward descent is the normative experience, as unpleasant as that looks. Jesus descended into hell. The difference is he descended in triumph. He descended in absolute triumph. I made reference last week to Dr. Gordon Fee, Marvelous, marvelous man of God. And one, of the, one of his sermons that I remember the best was he was talking about this very experience of Jesus descending into hell. And he illustrated it through, the, through a series of phone calls. There's a series of phone calls between the grave and Hades. And it starts with this elated phone call from the grave. And the grave is calling Hades and saying, Hey, we got him. We never thought we would. We pulled it off. It happened. We got him right here. And the grave, or Hades, responds back, That's marvelous. Never imagined it would work, but boy, it sure did. Keep him, keep him there. Keep him secure. And a few minutes passed, and there's another phone call, and the grave is calling Hades and says, uh, We need some help here. Um, this is, in fact, not going according to plan. We can't control him. Right? He's, 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 he's making a mess of the place. And Hades calls back, no problem, send him down. We've been waiting for this moment. And so some time passes and the demons up at the grave are waiting to hear how it goes. And suddenly the phone rings. This terrified voice on the other end says, send reinforcements. Yeah, he's down here. And he's got the keys. He descended in triumph. And then he rose. And he took captivity captive. He rose on the third day just exactly as he said, just exactly as the scriptures foretold. He ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus identified in humanity with his birth, his life, his death, and he affirmed his deity in his resurrection. Peter's description on the day of Pentecost of what happened culminates in this line, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you guys crucified. 
The very fact that he rose from the grave was complete proof of everything he had claimed to be. In order for Jesus to be Lord and Christ, he had to be God. In order for him to be crucified, he had to be man. He accomplished both, and his resurrection was that proof. And then he said he would return. We spoke first of his identity, then of his ministry, then of his return. And the creed says he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will return. It is as central to the plan of salvation as any other part of, of Christian doctrine. It is as essential as anything else we can say about Jesus is that he will return. And he will return to judge. Now, the term, that term judgment, we immediately kind of recoil from it, and we shouldn't necessarily do that. Uh, the word is krino, and it comes into English as crisis. Our, our English word crisis is right from this word. And all it really means is that moment in space and time, whenever something's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's that, it's that moment, that decisive, if you will, point in space and time. It's an urgent, decisive moment. We should not associate the word judgment with guilt unless we're guilty, right? The, the, the best analogy to what, or the best explanation, I think, of what this word means is like when you take a test, you know, some of us have to think back a while for that to happen. You take a test, right? And if you, if you know going in that you really know your stuff, it's not a big deal. In fact, it might even be kind of fun. Certainly be pleasant, knowing how well I've done. On the other hand, if you go into a test knowing that you're not prepared and you're not ready and the results aren't going to be good, it's not good at all. That's what the word means. See, all the word krino means, all the word judgment means is a decisive declaration of exactly how things are. We peel away all the facades, we peel away all the wishes and the hopes and the fantasies, and we find out exactly how things are. Jesus will return to say, what's what? Who is and who isn't? What we are, what we aren't. What is true and what is false. Jesus' return simply means the gray area goes away. Gray is lost. The thought of Jesus' return should be the single most sobering thought of any human being. The reality that he will return should rivet our attention more than any thought any person could think. Because he will return, he will judge, and eternity hangs in the balance. He will return, he will judge, and eternity hangs in the balance. I don't think a rational person can consider that honestly without turning to faith in Christ. Because there's no alternative. There is no alternative. So, I would conclude at least, at least this part this way. We've already established that, that God is our Lord, our Father, our God. Beside Him there is no other. His power and His authority are absolute. We have established that Jesus is His only Son. He is our Savior. He died for our sins. He descended into hell and he asserted his presence there by exercising power over death itself. And he will return. 
And upon his return, he will declare the eternal state of every single human being that has ever lived. It will be a determination that will be perfectly fair, perfectly merciful, perfectly just, and absolutely final. No appeal. No appeal. May our hearts be ready. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. And Father, I, I, again, Lord, oh, I'm so grateful that we live in an era where we have this revelation of your character, your great love for us, the plan of salvation, an explanation of who Jesus is in your word. Lord, we're left with a lot of questions, especially that whole issue of how you, know, you and Jesus work together. There's just a whole lot there, Lord, I can't get my head around tonight. I have no confidence that I never will decide of eternity. But Father, we know enough. In your word, Father, we know enough. It's summarized, Father, in powerful statements like the creedal statement before it, that we can know enough to understand that we are sinners, Lord, desperately in need of a gracious and merciful God to provide a Savior. Father, I think of the incredible faith of, of the man Job, who in the midst of his trials said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Father, if Job was able to get that much figured out with nothing before him by way of a, of a text, with nothing before him by way of Scripture, Father, simply by what he knew of your character, how much more ready should we be to make that assertion, Lord, even in the most difficult of our times, to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And though my body may fail, I will stand before him in my flesh, Lord. That kind of confidence in the God who loves us so and has provided in his very own son a way of escape from the power of sin and death, Lord. And the fear of judgment, Lord, we can, we can walk out of this place, Father, without fear of judgment, knowing, Lord, that you have accepted the sacrifice on our behalf. And so I, I just pray this morning, Father, our prayer is simple that we would be good stewards of the powerful truth of your word, the truth summarized in the creed, Lord, and be prepared to share with every person we meet this week, Lord, who would look at us and go, what makes you so completely different? Let me tell you, it's the God whom I serve. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.